Welcome, Alison. You've been writing history books for over 25 years now, with your book sales reaching 2.7 million and counting, which is phenomenal. Can I start by asking where your interest in history began? Yes, when I was 14 and I was off school sick and um, my mother marched me into the library next to the doctors and said, get a book because I had graduated from books to comics and pop magazines. And I got this book and it was the most, well, probably the most lurid cover in the library. And it was called Henry's Golden Queen. And it was about Henry VIII, Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn. And I just devoured it in two days. I was absolutely hooked, basically because it was in 1965, and I'm thinking, that, you know, the corner is a bit sexy, isn't it? People really like this. <laughs> and then, and then I, it just drove me off to the history books in my school library. I went to the City of London School. It was a really good library. And to try and find out the truth, because I was thinking, do people really go on like that in those days? And of course, yes, they did. <laughs> and, um, and so I think I've been trying to find out the truth ever since. And this literally overnight sparked a huge passion for history. And I wanted to find out more and more and more, expanded through the Tudors, um, so back to the Middle Ages, then forward, hold the British monarchy within a few years, and started writing almost immediately. My mother was delighted, as you can imagine. Yes. <laughs> she didn't have to nag me anymore. <laughs> um, your, your books focus on several periods in history and mm. feature notable characters from those times, which undoubtedly results in lengthy research for you. Can I ask, how do you go about starting your research once you've settled on a subject? The you? subjects about which I'm writing now are subjects that I'm familiar with the sources and always start with the secondary sources. I start with the framework, the framework of the story, and then build in the source material. It gets longer and longer. It, it, the book evolves that way. And then, uh, and then I look at the secondary sources to see what historians have been saying. Um, and, and, but I mean, in the early days, it was basically just a question of finding out as much information as possible and trying to marshal it. And, you know, I've got reams and reams still of unpublished research, wow. most of which is going to be published in the next few years, I'm delighted to say. But um, no, it was just just constantly seeking information and learning through the pitfalls, because I thought, you know, studying, for example, the genealogy of the British monarchy, I thought the dates would all be recorded somewhere. How wrong I was okay. <laughs> in my naivety as a teenager. So you've obviously done a lot of research and you've got, got a whole ream of information to put in. Do you ever then decide that, OK, I, I can't, li I literally can't can't write about everything so do you, you ever do, tailor the publishers it? decide oh, okay, you literally so can't write about everything I put it all in yeah and then they said well don't need this do we they're not going to be interested in that and I think yeah it's gold dust but you know no you get to a point where the kind of subjects I write about you reach biting point you're getting much the same sort of thing and in the end, you realise there's not okay. much further to be found. You've found out everything that's essential about your subject. You do find that. And of course, I, I did have some training, of course, because uh, teacher training college history was my main subject. And um, I had formal training in history there. Um, and I was actually going back to do a degree after I'd finished the teacher training. But I got married instead. Oh. <laughs> and that was shelved and then it never happened. Oh, so on, on average then, how long does it take you to undertake that sort of research, do you think? Or does it vary? It, it depends because, as I say, I'm drawing on research I've already got. Um, if I was going to research a subject from scratch, it would be a two-year two-year period to research and write a book wow. but that doesn't happen now because I'm usually covering fields that I that I'm, I'm, I already know like for example this series of books on the six wives these novels these are on the six wives of Henry VIII they are based on new research um and basically the re-researching and rewriting of composite biography I published in 91 
So that, and it's the new research for that. There's a very long-term project and it's not going to see the light of day for many years, but it's the new research and the new theories that are underpinning the novels. And it's a sort of halfway house, you know, the way of getting this new research across. That was going to be one of my questions actually going forward. But in terms of where you've obviously written about these characters before, how easy is it then to translate them into fiction? It was a challenge to start with because as a historian, you feel you've always got to to be getting facts across. Um, And so I had a whole lot of facts up front in this, the first draft of my first novel. And uh, my agent took my look and said, it's a riveting story, but it's faction. You've got to come off the fence, stop being a historian and start being a novelist Mm. and relax into it because all this information must be, it it should come out seamlessly in the text in conversation and the bits and pieces here and there. You don't feel you have to fill the reader up 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 front Mm. with, with all the information they might need to read the book. When you start to research or, or you're, you're going through the researching process, do you actually visit any of the places of significance that oh, are relevant? As, as often as I can, as many as I can. It's very important. It gives you a new perspective. You might also, if you're lucky, find something published locally. You wouldn't find, say, in a library or on Amazon or something like that. And um, so, yes, it's very important because you get a feel for the place. You'll get the lie of the place. That may be very significant in regard to, um, you know, what happened. For example, at Gainsborough Old Hall, there's a tower where Henry VIII is supposed to have you know stayed with Catherine Howard the king couldn't have got upstairs they're so narrow but a lover could (laughs) you see the kind of reason it's worth going there and the the biggest clangor that arose from that was when I wrote Eleanor of Aquitaine and and went along with accounts that the bones of the Plantagenets buried at Fontevraud had been dispersed at the French Revolution when I actually went to Fontevraud just after the book had gone to print I might add um, because I was on holiday and it was just on the way home and that's why we stopped. I hadn't made a specific visit there. Uh, I got I, I bought some new research published. There was in journals published there and uh, on sale there. If, but journals published in France, which were recent, I hadn't seen them. And they were saying that in the 18th century, the Plantagenet Falls been cut into. The bones have been buried elsewhere. No one knows where they are. Wow, that's not in the book. So the book was out of date before it even came hey. out. <laughs> so you should go. Yes. Considering your topics and the research involved, you have a very steady output of work. So do you have to be really strict with yourself and yes. stick to a routine when you're writing in order to achieve <laughs> oh, your deadlines? Oh, yes, deadlines? I do. I'm very strict. I've, I've taken to working office hours, okay. uh, apart from the last week or so, because it's mainly it, because I've got a tour coming up and lots of events. I'm trying to deliver a book beforehand, so it's been 24-7. But normally I work office hours because I was getting to the stage, I worked seven days a week and felt guilty if I didn't. So I thought, this has got to stop. This is not good for you. And so I now work office hours and I'm quite strict with myself and I turn off my inbox, which means I get a hell of a lot more work done. <laughs> That's very disciplined of you as well. You have, to be. Very you have to be disciplined. <laughs> and you have to I have a cutoff point in the morning emails and anything else, domestic things have to stop by 10 o'clock. And then I work through half an hour off for lunch. I'm allowed to put the emails on, okay. off again, on again. After I've written, I've, I'm, my target is 10 pages a day on a novel. You can't just quantify that on a biography because you're adding in, in, in all different places. But a novel, you're literally, I'm writing a chronological suite. Uh, so when I've done my 10 pages, then I'm allowed to look at the emails again. So I have to be very strict with myself. It's almost like a little treat, is it, when you get to it? <laughs> Wondering what people are saying. You know? <laughs> it's addictive. <laughs> um, if you had the opportunity to meet any of the figures in history that you've written about, who would it be, do you think, and why? Is that a bit of a mean question? Oh, I'd have to meet Richard III, and I have to grill him. <laughs> did you do it? Well, yeah. And if not, you know, well, if he didn't, I'd, like, I'd just love to know. But definite. I think the evidence points that he strongly did. And of course, Anne Boleyn, I'd be very interested mm. to know whether she really loved Henry VIII. What's her take on her story? 
it's we just don't know. Oh, I've been reading when he sort of it was discovered under the car park. I read quite a bit yes. of because I didn't know a lot about him actually. Yeah. But um, yeah, that became. I'd published a book called Richard the Third, the Prince in the Tower. It was called The Prince in the Tower originally, and also re-researched him for Elizabeth of York, which came out. I'd, I'd actually finished writing it by the time they found him, and it came out the year oh. just the autumn afterwards. Uh, so I'd re-researched it, and my uh, my feeling is that the the evidence strongly suggests yes, he did do it. You know, but a lot of people would like to take a contract out on me for that. <laughs> no. I mean, I have to, oh, I'm with you. I'm absolutely with you on what I've read so far. You can only go with the evidence. You mustn't. Mm. You don't sort of say he was wonderful and then try and make the facts fit round it. That's not the way you approach history. Yeah. You approach history and you try. For 25 years, having read um, earlier biographies and things, I thought he was maligned by historians. And then I came to write a book that I hadn't intended to write. It evolved out of another project. It was. A, I was looking at the fall of the Plantagenets, and I was getting a lot of the Prince of the Tower, and I was thinking. There's a book here, you know, and and that's how I I thought, well, perhaps everything's been said. And then I looked a few of the sources. No, it hadn't. I thought, no, there's there's a, you know, it would be nice to revisit this and look at it all afresh. So I did look at it afresh and I came right the way around to the opposite opinion after 25 years of having a rather revisionist view of him. That's one of the things I find so wonderful about history. Because every book is a contribution to a debate at a given time and it will get out, come out of date at some stage. I don't look at my published books. <laughs> <laughs> um, so going back, you obviously you'd made an exceptional name for yourself in writing non-fiction, uh, history-wise. But in 2006, you published your first historical fiction yes. novel. Did it feel like a natural succession to go from writing non-fiction no, to fiction? No, it, it almost, not almost by accident, but it, it wasn't intended for publication. When I was young, when I got interested in history, I did all kinds of projects, including writing historical fiction. I had plays, poems, family trees, histories, that kind of thing. And I tried everything. And it was years since I tried my hand at any fiction. And I had I was I had loads of research. I was writing it up for a biography of Eleanor of Aquitaine. And it wasn't um it was it you know, I I didn't need to do a lot of extra work. So I had time on my hands. It was it was quite a leisurely project. So I thought, I'm going to try my hand at writing a novel. Because what gave me the idea was there were gaps in our knowledge of Eleanor of Aquitaine, which is the nature of medieval biography. And I thought the only way you could write a book and deal with that would be to write a novel about her using educated, informed guesses. Well, I couldn't write about Eleanor, so I chose to write about a subject that wasn't very long, Lady Jane Grey, who died when she was in her 17th year. And uh, it's not very long. I knew it well, and I knew... I, in the time I had, that would work for me. And it was very dramatic. So that's how it came about. And I just did it for fun to see if I could do it. And as I wrote it, I started to really like what I was writing. And then I thought, at the end of it, I'm going to show my agent. Because I, I, hadn't, I hadn't a clue whether I could write fiction or not. I just did what I did. And that's when he said, it's, you know, it's a riveting story, but you've got to come off the fence and write it. And I got really upset about it, put it in a drawer and forgot about it. <laughs> And then and then a few years later, I took it out again, had a gap between books and rewrote it in a month in the first person present tense. In no historical biography would be written like that. And that's the book that was essentially commissioned. I had to do a lot of work on it. I had to really go back to square one and how to, you know, how to be a novelist rather than a historian. I must say, I'm um, reading A Dangerous Inheritance at the moment. Oh, I absolutely love it. I think that's probably one of my favourites of all the novels I've written. Then. That was actually, that was my next question. So, oh, thank you. yeah. I've, written, I'm just, I've just finished my eighth because I've just finished Jane Seymour. So I've written eight novels. Yeah. Um, one hasn't been edited. Uh, well, two haven't actually. Yeah, one hasn't been edited. And um, 
I think I just love that dual story and the supernatural aspect and all the mystery of the papers and the princes and everything. It was a huge challenge to work out and how far you are with it, but to work out as a historian what they could have found out then. Mm. What you know, they, they didn't know anything about the bones being found in the tower. You know, that, there's an appendix all about it. Yeah, so I was because um, I'm I'm about I think I'm about 350 pages into it now. Oh, well, you're so not I'm, too I'm, far I'm, from yeah, the end. I'm, yeah. I'm going, but what it's doing for me actually, which is what you, historical fiction usually does, is it's making me want to go back and investigate more. So um, yes, I've got, I've got yeah. the bug again to, to go. I'd back love and to read do a biography of Lady Catherine Grey. I mean, she's oh. been in composite biographies in the last. Actually, there isn't a single biography of her. It's a tragic story. Then there's this, and we know a lot about her, so that wasn't too difficult to do. But there's this other story with only four sources for, for the life of Catherine Plantagenet. So that's a bit of a blank canvas. But of course, there are hints. You know, you can piece together where she might have been and what her story, where were her loyalties and that kind of thing. And I invented a love story because I rather like the character of John de la Pole, Earl of Lincoln, mm. in, in, a, in a television series called, called um, oh, what was it called now? Oh, The Shadow of the Tower. Have you ever seen oh, okay, it? No, it's, know it was it came out about 1972, and it's you can get it on DVD. Oh, right. James Maxwell plays Henry the Seventh. This guy plays John de la Pole, Earl of Lincoln. And I found him rather attractive, so he's that's why I chose that character. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> yes. Oh, sorry, great. So I could get a picture of him now if I'm yeah. going to find that. But look him up; you'll find pictures of the actor on. Google. Oh, brilliant! Oh, yeah, I'll do that. Um, one of uh, the greatest things about history is that not only is it unfolding all the time around us, but there's still more to be discovered. So in recent times, we've witnessed the discovery of the remains of Richard III, which we touched on earlier. Um, And I wondered, as a historian, do events such as these give you new perspectives on your research and help with material for further books? They do indeed. And, um, I mean, it's amazing. Things, Something like that. We can find the bones of a monarch. That's an incredible project. It really is incredible success. But the thing that I think astonished everybody was the, the scoliosis because it gave, it lent credence to reports from his lifetime, you know, that he was not crook-backed perhaps, but maybe he looked like that, you know, maybe he didn't. There's a lot of arguments people are trying to make now that he couldn't have looked like that. But I think the, but I think it must have had a big impact on him. But then it might lead us also to say that, um, question other reports, you know, that are they accurate? So it, it, it continue makes you want to investigate it, and find it, more. It does, it? absolutely, yes. It, it gives us a new perspective. I mean, that's a spectacular find. It really is. But I mean, there was five, There was a fragment of a London merchant's commonplace book found in a manuscript binding in about 1983. And that added to our knowledge of the period leading up right. to Richard Third succession. It's or usurpation, as some might say. It's, it's a fragment, but it just is another piece in the jigsaw. You never know what could come out. Yeah, no, and, go, and going on from that, the interest in the Tudor period specifically, um, mm. it's, it's as great as it ever was. Why do you think this period in particular holds such a fascination? I've been asked this loads and loads of times. I think because it's one of the most dramatic and vivid periods of English history. It's a period of turbulent change, but it's presided over by these very, very flamboyant, fascinating characters, larger-than-life characters of the Tudor dynasty. And you couldn't make their story up. A king who's got six wives, beheads yeah. two of them, gets divorced three times. Um, a queen who burns martyrs, a 70, a 16-year-old girl who becomes queen for nine days and ends up beheaded. Um, uh, and, and then Elizabeth, a great survivor, uh, 45 years on the throne after inheriting a bankrupt kingdom, you know, with, with lots of problems. And this is an incredible story. But it's incredible also because we know a lot more about it. Go back 50 to, to Richard III's reign, at the, near the end of the 15th century. 
the sources are so sparse compared with the overwhelming number we have for the Tudor period. And that's due to two things. The you know, eventual printing and the spread of you know, printed matter and, and dissemination of literature. And also the, the growth of literacy and the growth of diplomacy. Because Henry VIII's annulment brought the royal marriage, in, or the great matter as it was called, brought the royal marriage into public focus for the first time really in English history. And it was sensational in its day. And ambassadors, you know, you've got ambassadors reports we haven't got for earlier periods, and they're reporting every little detail. So we've got a great written record of their private lives of the Tudors, which we don't have for earlier kings and queens. And we've got fragments for them, but, but the Tudor period, there's still gaps, and the gaps are what are tantalising. Was Anne Boleyn innocent or guilty? You know. I think it's that. a fantastic period for getting children interested oh, as well. Because we've got a great visual record. We've got the portraits of Holborn, portraits just developing. We've got the remains of splendid palaces like Hampton Court, and even places like Acton Court, where there's the beautifully preserved remains of a wing. Uh, built for Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn to stay, sleep in for two nights. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, That's it's in, in Gloucestershire. Um, absolutely well oh, worth a visit. Okay. At Acton Court, look it up online, and you can see all these antique Renaissance friezes around the rooms. The bedchamber, the presence chamber, they had, they were built for them, and even the privy that was in the corner of the bedchamber where they actually stayed. That's my weekend activity. Um, it's lovely. <laughs> They're nice people there. I've taken tour groups there. And there's beautiful gardens. It's a wonderful house. And look and see when it's open and book a tour if you can because it's oh. a really lovely house. Oh, Unspoiled. David Starkey's written about it. I, I can't let you go without asking you about your reading habits, if I may. Um, I've read that libraries feature heavily in your formative years and in helping yep. with your research. So can I oh, ask yeah. what libraries mean to you? Dear, <laughs> because the library, I mean, libraries are not what they were when I was young. I don't, I can't speak for this library mm -hmm. because I, I have never been in this library until today. Yeah. Uh, but the libraries I used to work in are no longer there, one or two are no longer there, or they have changed beyond recognition. They are not places to go and study, and that's very sad. So, uh, and I do think there is a problem because books are now so easily obtainable on the internet that must have had an impact on libraries. See, I see libraries as places for books. I'm very old-fashioned. I'm one of the people who sits there saying, shh. <laughs> and, and I don't think computers have a place in libraries. I think libraries are libraries. They should have reference libraries with proper tables and desks, you know, that kind of thing, where you can work as well as find books. It, it's just the concept's gone. So for me, all the pleasure of being, I used to get very excited look, being in libraries, mm. sitting there in little carols or my preferred desk and, you know, going around all these shelves. And I'd spend weeks and weeks in them. Well, they magical places for you, really, with that. Absolutely. I was a total fun. nerd. My daughter said to me, Mum, you didn't spend the 60s in a library, <laughs> did you? Actually, yes. <laughs> so, uh, yes, I mean, some libraries, I'm sure, are, are still like that. Mm. But I'm, the ones I know, the one I actually moved back to an area for has changed beyond recognition. Oh, really? I did write and complain. And they said, well, do you want it to remain open? <laughs> but who are they yeah. serving? I mean, you know, in, in, if you've got a reference library, why have little sort of round tables where you can't sit and work? They're fighting all the time with sort of um, things like that that are going on. That so it's, it's really hard, isn't it? Oh, but I it's think nice so. To, yeah. Um, very last question for you then. And um, what sort of type of books do you read to unwind or read for pleasure? Domestic noir. <laughs> I love <laughs> them. I'm addicted to. Absolutely love them. Or really occasional historical novel. Yeah. Because the trouble is, it's like a busman's holiday. You're mentally writing it, and you or you or you think they've done their homework. <laughs> and uh, one or two, with one or two very old, few honourable exceptions, and. Um, 
I mostly mostly enjoy that kind of thing, you know, something with a good mystery in it. It just yeah. takes you away, doesn't it? It takes it you does. outside of you. It does. A real yeah. page turner. That's what I'm looking for. Pardon very me. good. Yeah. Um, right, Alison, thank you ever so much. Thank so you. That's very thank kind you very um, for, for joining us today. Um, and I wish you every success with all your other Thank you projects. very much. <laughs> and so nice chatting with you.